Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here we go. Time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Terrific panel uh, with us today. Uh, we've got some outstanding academicians on the show. And are also. I'm also joined today by Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, thanks for, we normally see you on Friday. Thanks for being with us uh, today. This is a good day for you. We've got some great news to talk about. No, happy to be here on a misty, moisty Wednesday. <laughs> good good way of putting it. Um, we're joined by Anthony Michael Christ, professor of law at Georgia State University. Uh, Anthony, thank you for being with us today as well. Good morning. And we have with us uh, two colleagues uh, from Emory University, Professor Andra Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Hi, Andra. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. And your colleague, Alan Abramowitz, now a Professor Emeritus of Political Science um, after a long career teaching classes, writing about political science, uh, taking a little chance to relax a bit. And if you don't mind, Alan, one of the things that means, you're now getting a chance to learn a second musical instrument, you told us before the show. You've been a guitar You've been a guitar player. Music has always been very important to your life. And you've been a guitar player. You get together with friends and play. And now you're learning a new instrument. Yes, I've been taking lessons on the fiddle, and we're um, getting ready for a class that starts here uh, at at ten o'clock. But if any if anyone uh, misbehaves this morning, I might just uh, punish you by by playing. Some. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that, uh, Alan. All right, let's get right to it, Jim. Um, obviously, one of the big stories. When I said we have great stories to talk about, uh, one of the big ones is the fact that yesterday. In Fulton County Superior Court, arguments were made as to whether or not the special grand jury report on the on the attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election here in Georgia should be made public. Um, there were arguments on both sides, but I think the biggest headline <laughs> to come out of it is that um, Fannie Willis suggested that indictments uh, could be, quote, imminent, that in itself is real news. And of course, by the way, she argued because of that, and we'll go into it in more depth, she thinks the report should be kept under wraps for now. Right, right. And and we don't know uh, who, who those imminent charges are going to be filed against, whether they're going to be more Georgia-centric or whether they're going to target uh, President Trump. I thought... I th you know, I thought uh, the, the the second biggest uh, uh, storyline out of out of that ninety minute hearing was the fact that the results of this grand jury will be made public eventually. Uh, that they that 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 there was there was no contention by the prosecution that 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 the this this should be the this should be a state secret held forever, uh, which is which is important. Even the judge acknowledged that it would be pretty much uh, impossible to keep it because uh, uh, he, he raised the possibility of 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 members of this this uh, investigative grand jury uh, just kind of uh, uh, talking uh, that they that they will eventually be be talking about what they found out um Anthony uh, is, let's talk a little bit about that we should point out that judge McBurney, uh, may very well decide to release some or all of the report. It's up to him to do it. He did say that rather than issue a, an oral opinion yesterday, he wanted to take this under consideration uh, because he didn't want to make a rash decision about it. Um, but uh, talk to us a little bit about the argument that um, the, the countervailing arguments, keep it, 
Keep it under wraps because to not keep it under wraps could be prejudicial to eventual defendants in this case, according to the district attorney. And on the other side, those who say this is essentially a public record, given that this special grand jury is operating in a government setting. Yeah, so ultimately, I think it's important to understand that in Georgia, there is a presumption that grand jury proceedings on the whole um, are entitled to the kind of secrecy that we might think of when uh, grand juries are talked about in, say, a law and order episode, right? That there is a secrecy that attaches to their deliberations, but their work product there's a presumption that that work product, a report, or what we would call in kind of more archaic terms, a general presentment, that there's a, a public interest there. And there's a public interest there that must be met by publish, publishing that report if a majority of the jurors want it in, in the public eye for public view and consumption. And so I think what you saw yesterday was Judge, Judge McBurney understand and communicate to all the parties involved that that's really what's at the, the baseline here, that there's a presumption of, of publication for public release and, and viewing. Um, what Fonnie Willis, I think, was arguing on the back end about pro, you know due process and the like, I don't necessarily buy or put much weight into that argument because so much of this information is public already. So many of the targets and witnesses of this investigation are public or quasi-public figures, and a lot of this information is already in, in public circulation. But I think what she's really concerned about and the office is concerned about is that the report will get ahead of any potential indictments that they have. So I think it's more of a prosecutorial strategy than it is a, a prosecution um, problem in terms of appeal down the road or, or right, a fair trial. So uh, you know, I, I think what's going to come down the pipeline in the next few days, perhaps, is that there will likely be some indictments, as I think she signaled, um, because of the special purpose grand jury said, please don't indict anybody. There were no potential crimes here. And the DA's office agreed. They would just ha- release the port report and that would be the end of the story. So I think we're we're in for a couple of months of of a lot more focus on the Fulton County D, DA's office and uh, potential uh, potential indictments from their their findings. Andrew, there's certainly an enormous hunger out there to see what this special grand jury concluded, and we should point out that the special grand jury did recommend that their report be made. Public. That'll weigh into McBurney's thinking, I think, as well as the other factors. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because if you look at the January 6th committee and they released all of their findings, even as the Department of Justice continues its investigation in Washington and their investigation could lead to indictments. Now, it's a separate body. It's Congress as opposed to uh, DOJ. Uh, but nevertheless, I think there are people who think what's good for what's going on with DOJ and, and the January 6th committee should be good for the Fulton County Special Grand Jury's report. So, you know, this is an interesting story about federalism. We think about federalism in terms of different levels of government. And, you know, there certainly is an argument that basically everybody has kind of followed uh, sort of like the national government's lead. But that actually isn't true everywhere. And I think this is one of those cases in terms of the legal system where this bears out. So the dance between the former January 6th committee and the DOJ is partially a reflection of separation of powers at the national level. Um, mm-hmm. And here, what we see mm-hmm. is that that investigatory function and the judicial function are actually kind of happening in the same office. And so because of that, it's going to look a little bit different by necessity. Um, and so that doesn't, and, and I mean, and also part of the reason why the January 6th committee could release its report was that that was all that it could do. Right. They they had fulfilled their oversight uh, responsibilities. They couldn't carry it any further. They can't prosecute anything else. And so it is up to the executive branch to decide what to do in this case. In this instance, this grand jury was seated with the purpose of providing advice and investigatory power to the district attorney so that she could then make a decision. And so we're just waiting for her to finish her process before she releases the results of 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 and, and the explanation for the decision that she's making. Alan? Well, I I think what's interesting about uh, all of this to me is that it it demonstrates that we're moving into now the next phase of this whole process and this whole investigation. Uh, And in that next phase, 
it seems very likely, um, and this could happen very soon, that there are going to be indictments. And uh, whenever that report is released, of course, there's going to be a huge interest in the content of that report. But as far as these indictments, I mean, this is going to have, I think, uh, a direct and immediate impact on the state of Georgia, because it is pretty likely, I think, that we're going to see some leading political figures in the state of Georgia, including perhaps the current lieutenant governor, um, the current chair of the Republican Party, um, could be indicted uh, for their role in trying to overturn the election uh, and the result of the election here in Georgia. So, uh, you know, I think the, it, this is going to just have uh, an immediate and very dramatic impact on uh uh, on, on the country, but particularly on the state of Georgia, because this is coming before anything's likely to happen at the federal level with the, you know, with with the uh, special uh, uh, counsel investigation. Uh, Jim, I know you want to jump in, but let's make sure we explain that uh, Bert Jones could eventually, in fact, be uh, indicted. Uh, he cannot be indicted by this uh, 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 in this action because mm -hmm. uh, McBurney removed him. Uh, from being a target because of a, a conflict of interest. Fonnie Willis gave a fundraiser for his opponent in the lieutenant governor's mm -hmm. race. So down the road, Jones could be in real trouble as well. Um, but, Jim, why don't you just weigh in in general right now, and then let's talk about some of the people who could be in the spotlight here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, and, and to that point, I'd like to kind of toss a question to, to Anthony. Uh, uh, at, at yesterday's hearing, uh, the the non-participants included uh, 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 lawyers representing uh, possible defendants, uh, and uh, afterwards, uh, Trump's Donald, former President Donald Trump's lawyers put out a statement saying that they had not been contacted by the grand jury, so they presume that the president has been found innocent of all all uh, of of all doing. So, 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 my question to Anthony is: is, is if if uh, there's a grand jury looking into something and and they don't call me in, uh, does that mean I'm 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 free to walk? Well, I think it could be one of two things. Either you might well be free to walk or you're the head of the, the top of the food chain and I'm mm -hmm. after you, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really what we, we we're seeing here is that they're trying to build a case from the bottom <clears> up <throat> um, and not from the top down. So I don't, I don't think that you can make much of it either way. Maybe an indictment's coming for Donald Trump, maybe not, but not being called really doesn't signal one way or the other. So um, let's point out, um, Andra, just some of the people who have been brought in to testify, some of whom uh, were named as targets, others who have not been named necessarily as targets, but certainly could be vulnerable to um, indictments. We're talking about, obviously, Rudolph Giuliani, a national figure. We're talking about John Eastman, the president's advisor, the legal advisor who came up with this whole fake elector scheme in an effort to get Mike Pence to disqualify the Biden electors on January 6th. We're talking about here in Georgia, David Schaefer, who is the current chair of the Georgia Republican Party and was one of those fake electors. And there is, I think, 10 other or maybe 11 other fake electors, too, here in Georgia who've been targeted. And that's really just kind of beginning to look at who could be uh, indicted in this. So, I mean, there, I think, are a range of possibilities here. The fake electors for kind of perpetrating this fraud are a possibility. Um, the intimidation of Brad Raffensperger. So anybody who was involved in that conversation, so it doesn't just have to be President Trump, um, anybody else who was coming to try to in intimidate uh, the Secretary of State or the governor into not certifying the election results as they are um, is, is exposed. Um, you know, I think, it, you know, if we're going to look at John Eastman as kind of like a mastermind or a co-mastermind of the whole plot there might be some um 
you know, like there might be some exposure there. So there are lots of, of different places that Willis could possibly go. And I think it's a question of whether or not she focuses on one of these alleged crimes or whether or not she might try to prosecute all of them. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think we just have to wait and see what will happen. But we know from the public record, from the things that we know have happened elsewhere, that there are a lot of different possibilities in terms of the possible crimes that were committed here that she might actually be willing to charge if she's got enough evidence to prosecute. Um, Alan, the attorney for John Eastman, Charles Burnham, uh, said that uh, he, his quote was, grand juries are one-sided and unfair, but we hold out hopes <laughs> that jurors appreciated that while they may disagree with John Eastman's views, there was clearly no crime committed. Well, I mean, obviously, that will be up to the grand jury that Fonnie Willis may mm -hmm. take this case to next to determine whether Eastman didn't commit a crime right. by orchestrating mm -hmm. this fake elector scheme. Yeah, I mean, th this is going to be fascinating because what we have here is really this is the first legal <laughs> proceeding that is targeting the higher ups uh, in the scheme to overturn the election. What we've seen so far uh, with the uh, trials and you know, indictments and, and trials, in some cases, convictions uh, of those involved in the January 6th insurrection is that it's been, you know, the foot soldiers for the most part. And then some of the the, the leaders of some of some of these far right groups that have been targeted, but not the you know, not the, not the political figures who are who are involved uh, in this process. And, and as far as John Eastman is concerned, I think. The uh, the issue here with Eastman and some of these others, including the Giuliani, is, um, you know, did they know? Uh, shouldn't they have known? And weren't they, in fact, told repeatedly that what they were doing was illegal? Uh, and there, there was no legal foundation, you know, for this this effort uh, to choose fake electors and to overturn the results uh, of the election. And it's pretty clear from the testimony that we heard. Uh, before the uh, uh, January 6th committee of the House that, um, in fact, they were aware of the fact, or at least should have been aware of the fact that what they were doing was clearly violating the law. Anthony? So there's a couple of problems here. One is that there are some instances, at least from what we see in the public record, of of crimes that are discreetly prosecutable. So, for example, Donald Trump making the phone call to Brad Raffensperger could be solicitation of election fraud. Um, her, his harassment of poll workers could be hindering the administration of an election. Um, we could see how the fake electors, for example, could be prosecuted for filing a false document, making a material misrepresentation. But then you have the, the, the trickier people like Eastman or Giuliani, they testified before the General Assembly. Georgia does not have a general uh, defrauding of the state statute like the federal government. Uh, we also don't swear in witnesses before the General Assembly, so you can't be charged with perjury, even if you mislead. Um, and so I think there's a right. Some of those those other actors and Mark Meadows might be in this mix too. If they get brought in, it's because Fonnie Willis is trying to bring a broad conspiracy charge, or as some folks have suggested, perhaps a broad Georgia RICO charge, in which case it won't be about picking and choosing who to select to prosecute. It'll be about bringing everybody in together and weaving a narrative about how different spokes were, were operating at the same time, even if different people didn't know what role they had in the broader conspiracy. So. I think her, her decision is really a threshold one of this. Is she going to bring discrete charges against a handful of individuals, or is she going to bring this broader conspiracy or RICO kind of charge where everybody gets lumped in together? And, and I think that she has shown, and this office has shown, a penchant for bringing the latter, even in some pretty weak cases, um, right? with Recently, we have one. Um, the Atlanta Public Schools case was a strong one, but another uh, RICO case that, that, that this office brought. So I think that's really what we need to be on the lookout for for, um, because I, I think that's the, that's the hard decision she's going to have to make. Uh, Jim, it, it, let's pursue a little bit the political aspects of this. Um, Anthony mentioned a little while ago that, and, and let's remind our listeners, the special grand jury is making recommendations after having been impaneled for about eight months to hear the testimony of witnesses that Willis and her office wanted mm -hmm. to bring 
forward. They themselves do not have the power to bring criminal indictments. They can only make a recommendation to a regular grand jury, which is what we expect is going to happen, given that Fannie Willis suggested that there are indictments that are potentially imminent here. So, okay, so what Anthony suggested a little while ago is this may go on for months. Um, And it now moves very much into the presidential election cycle with Donald Trump already a declared candidate for president. Um, But here in Georgia and in Fulton County, it also moves into the beginning of the campaign of Fannie Willis for re-election as district attorney. Right. And, 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 uh, you you know, uh, I, I think I think Willis is probably in pretty darn good shape. Uh, this is, I mean, you got to remember, she replaced uh, 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 Paul Howard, and who uh, who who uh, had had some committed some serious missteps. I don't think that's the same uh, same thing here. And you got to remember, Fulton County is a very heavily Democratic party. I think the the more interesting aspect of this is going to be you could see Donald uh, an indicted Donald Trump campaigning here in Georgia. Uh, which would add a a, 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 a a very weird but possibly powerful uh, 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 kind of uh, uh, momentum for him here, uh, because as we have seen, uh, he 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 thrives on victimhood. You could also have uh, Mike Pence, who could be you know I mean Mike Pence would be could, could easily figure in as a witness here, and he too could be campaigning here. And the other part to, to remember is you've got uh, we we have no idea. What Brian Kemp, Governor Brian Kemp, told the grand, the Fulton County Grand Jury about his contacts and his dealings with, with Donald Trump. Uh, and that is likely to be one of the things that comes out when, when this report is finally made public. Uh, and, and so that could have an impact on, 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 on Kemp. Uh, Andra, Fonnie Willis has a lot on her plate. She's got the young thug, YSL, uh, case, which is a sprawling indictment. And talk and, and a big RICO case, just like Anthony suggested, could be what she would do with the uh, fake elect with the election uh, case. I, I mean, and although I think Jim makes a good point that that she probably is riding a little bit high right now in terms of public opinion. Um, there are those who question the resources that are being used when there is a real continuing to be a backlog of more ordinary criminal cases that they just don't have the bandwidth to handle, Andra. Um, well, yes, but then again, this is also something that is important nationally, and especially if at the national level, this is getting hemmed up in partisan politics, where people are so kind of locked into their partisan identity to sort of borrow from Allen, that they aren't going to address this issue, that somebody has to do this. So on the one hand, even though it's not her constituency, Fonnie Willis is actually doing uh, the job that a lot of Americans kind of want, which is to try to do something to hold people accountable for things that they should have been held accountable for in that second impeachment. So, um, you know, I think she's demonstrating the ability to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, You know, Willis has walked a very fine line between being tough on crime in an era where it was really tough for a Democrat, Mm. particularly a Black Democrat, to be tough on crime. And so the YSL trial, I think, provides her symbolically um, and other some people will argue with whether or not this is appropriate, but symbolically provides her with the example of the fact that she is, in fact, um, being tough on crime and going after the types of crime that we sadly stereotype certain groups as as sort of being the culprit of. So I think at the end of the day, I think it's a question of is there actually going to be um, an alternative who could successfully primary her? And she is not in the same category as, say, like a Chester. Boudin in San Francisco. Like she's just, she's just not in that position. So I think she has a lot of latitude to do things, even if, if it's not being done perfectly, or even if different uh, factions within Fulton County politics have some complaint about how she's doing her job. All right. Uh, before we take a break, Alan, I don't want to uh, neglect to point out that uh, Tom Clyde, an attorney who has uh, worked on uh, uh, many uh, media matters for Cox for WSB TV for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. He was in court yesterday uh, representing a coalition of media organizations from the AJC to WSB TV, CNN, New York Times, and others 
they are arguing very strongly that the public has a right to have access to this report. I think they want it in its entirety immediately. And there is an argument for uh, that that McBurney will have to take into consideration, Alan. Sure. Uh, There is an important consideration here. I have a feeling, though, that the judge is going to be influenced more by the concerns expressed by Bonnie Willis about how uh, the immediate release of this report could potentially jeopardize um, the uh, you know cases that she's tr- that she's planning to bring. Um, so my hunch is is that we won't see this report for a while. Uh, we will see it clearly uh, at at some point, but how soon we'll see it is a uh, is an open question. I think one other interesting thing here about the effective indictments is going to be how this, you know, plays into the whole growing divide within the Republican Party over the role of Donald Trump in the Republican Party. If he's under indictment, you know, this could on the one hand serve to kind of uh, uh, reinforce the support that he has from, you know, uh, his base. Um, uh, but on the other hand, I think we're seeing a growing divide among Republicans about um uh, whether Trump is should be the future of the Republican Party or whether the party should uh, turn elsewhere. And, and I think this is this is just going to really uh, uh, further that that uh, uh, debate and division within the Republican Party. All right. Thank you all for a really fascinating conversation. We'll watch to see how quickly uh, Judge McBurney decides uh, this case and, and what he decides. And obviously, it's going to be fascinating Uh, to watch all of this unfold in the weeks ahead. Let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Um, we're glad to uh, have with us today uh, Anthony Michael Christ from Georgia State University, Alan Abramowitz, and Andre Gillespie from Emory and my uh, good friend Jim Galloway, former political columnist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, uh, the governor gives his State of the State speech at 11 o'clock this morning. And by the way, GPB will uh, have that speech on all of our platforms, gpb.org, gpb.tv. It'll be on our website. Um, Leah Fleming and Donald Lowry will be down at the Capitol to... uh, work on uh, presenting the speech uh, to everyone. And then at 7 o'clock tonight, lawmakers will have a special edition, which will include response from Democrats uh, to what the governor has to say. All right, that's my there's my promotion. I've done my duty. Uh, now let's talk about it. Uh, the HAC just released a poll which shows that Brian Kemp is coming into this state of the state flying high. He has a 62% approval rating, uh, 32% disapproval, 35% of Democrats give him a positive rating, 49% of independents, maybe a more important figure uh, right now. So I think one of the questions here, Jim, is those are great numbers, but as we listen to the state of the state speech, what is he prepared to do with all of the capital that he has built up? How broad a vision is he willing to paint, given his strength right now? Right, right. And I, I, I would point out, and Alan, you can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 61%, I don't think a, a Georgia governor has hit that since maybe the early days of, of, of Nathan Deal. Uh, uh, you know, that, and that's, that's been almost uh, a decade ago. Uh, but uh, yeah, this is, it's, it's a, I think he he proved himself in this in this last uh, election, uh, and 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 definitely uh, proved himself to Republicans by handling uh, David Perdue so well, uh, and he has quite a bit of cash 
uh, yet to be doled out from uh, from the federal largesse that that uh, that that remains as as part of the 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 uh, the, the COVID effort. Uh, and and right now, uh, I think the plan is 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 to uh, to to uh, kind of rebate that to taxpayers. Uh, of course, you're going to have Democrats uh, they've prepared an answer for it, and and they have very very much focused on uh, in the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, which is 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 something that, you know, uh, Brian Kemp is kind of free to do that now. If he if he wants to if he wants to pursue that, uh, uh, he's he's got the he's got the capital to do that. But I, it doesn't look like he's 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 going to do that. It looks like he's going to uh, focus as his, his as has been his one on economic development, uh, which he kind of views as a as a as a precursor to to improved health care. Uh, uh, especially through uh, through uh, uh, making Georgia the, the 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 electric vehicle capital of the nation. Yeah, uh, uh, Alan, that's where I was going to go, and I want to get first your opinion and everybody else in the mix on this. So the broadest vision he has shown so far is just what Jim said: electric mobility. You know, building Rivian, building building out Hyundai, having the new solar uh, panels uh, 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 plant uh, up uh, in North Georgia, and so all of that sounds very good, but how broad? But 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 as Jim points out, this is a time you could do so much for health care. There are so many other problems that the state faces, and what right. Kemp seems to mostly want to do with the money is uh, give it back to taxpayers. Right. Yeah, it's very interesting that I mean, Brian Kemp clearly is enjoying a second honeymoon right now in the aftermath of his reelection. Um, he's enjoying these very high approval numbers. Um, but um, there's a gap and discrepancy here on the one hand between his overall popularity and the support that we see from the public or the attitudes toward his actual policies. Because um, if you also look at some of the other results from the AJC poll, you find that, um, in fact, uh, the voters here in Georgia don't necessarily agree with Brian Kemp's policy priorities, that a plurality or majority of Georgia voters support using the surplus actually um, to pay for expanded social services and health care, not um, tax cuts. That a plurality or majority of voters want to see access to abortion expanded over what it is right now, not uh, remain where it is or cut back further. So uh, and on gun control also, this is not one of the issues in the poll, but we know that the public doesn't necessarily agree with some of the policies that Kemp is pursuing. But he has to make a decision about whether he's more interested in building a legacy here by you know, pursuing policies that will be generally beneficial to the state or whether he's more focused on a future in the Republican Party as a potential you know, say vice presidential candidate, as you know, his name has been mentioned. Uh, and if that's the direction he wants to go, and if that's what he's concerned about, then uh, I think we're going to see him focus more on trying to enact policies or pursue policies that play to the Republican base and not necessarily to the broader electorate here in Georgia. And that does seem to me to be the direction that he seems to be heading in. Andrew? Yeah, you know, while these numbers are are certainly strong and enviable, and, and, and I think any governor would, would be pleased to have them, I think it's also important to look at kind of what the spread is between strongly um, approve and uh, and somewhat approve, right? And they're pretty e equally split, so about 30 per 31% each. So, you know, what that suggests is he's got a group of diehard supporters, and then he's got a group of fair weather folks who could be persuaded by uh, the tenor and tone of certain types of policies. So people who are like, yeah, you're all right, you, you're not irritating me today. So I'll give you good marks. Um, and so what, what you do there, uh, I, I think, is actually like really important. And I think it's a question of what does your vision look like? So I can't say that I am surprised that Governor Kemp would want to focus on economic development and not expanding the social safety net. He's a Republican. That tends to be uh, from, you know, taken right out of the Republican playbook. Um, and so, I you know, elections have consequences and we see that. But I think what's going to happen is if the economic development includes the types of, of jobs where you don't get good health care, 
there, are people going to feel secure? Um, and are people going to think that you did the right thing by providing lots of incentives or providing lots of tax breaks to people who didn't necessarily need them when you had an opportunity to be able to sort of provide health and welfare uh, for everybody across the state to make everybody more productive? And so this is just a big philosophical argument um, that uh, we should uh, be willing to have, but that we should also not be surprised by. Um, you know, he's behaving the way I would expect a Republican governor to behave. Anthony, I do. I want to get you in here, but I, I do want to say that the uh, the economic development uh, that uh, Brian Kemp and his team have been able to um, uh, bring into the state is certainly worthy of uh, positive uh, attention. I mean, these are huge projects, Rivian, Hyundai, Q-cells, battery companies, electric car battery companies coming. So I don't want to underplay that. Um, it's just if it, it, it talk about it in terms of the broader uh, vision for, say, social, uh, 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 you know, net pro protections down the line. So I, I think we're kind of we're entering this era of good feelings for a little bit in Georgia politics, which is so rare. And it's so nice to enjoy for about two weeks that it's going to last. Um, but I think one of the things that that the governor has been doing, which is probably keeping his his poll numbers afloat is he's doing he's he's also projecting uh, a vision for some policies that I think are just universally um agreeable, right? We're going to fully fund the HOPE scholarships again. We're going to reinvest in education in K through 12 schools, um, right? We're going to boost the, the the pay of state employees, and we're going to invest in employment, ho uh, employee housing, and, um, and and the kind of indus industry that we're trying to attract to Georgia is green energy and clean energy, right? So um, where this, I think that this will diverge perhaps is when we get into the the things that really divide us abortion what are we going to do about crime um what what about gay rights trans rights right all the kinds of issues that are very deeply divisive where we haven't really touched on them yet um there, there's plenty of opportunities i think for the, that polling to become much more polarized than what it is now and for some of those lukewarm supporters that andre you know um uh you know gesture to uh, you know some of them are going to fall away from the the Kemp camp in, in the coming weeks, I'm sure. But but for now, um, you know, there's there's relative peace in, in the Capitol. All right, Jim, uh, speaking of, of abortion, one of the issues that Anthony just mentioned yesterday, uh, Democrats in each of uh, the bodies, the Senate and the House, filed bills to overturn Georgia's restrictive abortion law, the heartbeat six week abortion law and uh, want to replace it with um, a measure which would allow a woman to choose if she's uh, wanted to an abortion at any point. There's no restriction on when she might do that. Now, clearly, that is not going to pass a Republican-controlled House or Senate and certainly would never be signed into law by this governor. Uh, but uh, it's a political statement. It's an effort for the Democrats to say, uh, all of you out there, independent voters, suburban women who still care deeply about the right to choose, we're on your side. Yeah, and 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 I I think it's also in anticipation of the fact that 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 uh, Republicans like Brian Kemp and and House House Speaker John Burns <clears throat> and and Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, they don't really control the abortion issue. We, we, I mean, we have, we have, we have seen, we have seen this happen before, uh, where, where, where Republican leaders say, no, we want to hold off on, 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 on any further abortion restrictions until uh, this court or that court rules, uh, and and we do and the 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 six week law, of course, is is still being reviewed by by the courts, even though it's in effect, but, uh, but. Those those objections, kind of those Republican uh, statements, kind of fall by the wayside when it, when a when a contingent of 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 uh, Republicans in each chamber, especially in the Senate, come together. Now, now you had a you had a situation last week where you had a a a, 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 a an anti-abortion activist kind of uh, included a prayer that they that you know thanked God for the the death of House Speaker David Ralston, which was widely condemned. It kind of it, it probably helps dampen any any enthusiasm for for taking it up. But again. It's not under their control. Uh, uh, it, it's, 
Uh, Bill, I would also like to, if I could, just go, go back, very quickly back to the elect, uh, uh, electric vehicles uh, 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 thing. The, the, the introduction of all these new industries into Georgia, it also actually helps 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 uh, Kemp and other Republicans, uh, governors before him, kind of avoid the uh, the, the criticism that uh, uh, over over these two new nuclear plants at Plant Vogel. You know, they're they're vastly vastly uh, 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 exceeded their their budget. They're far beyond they're far beyond uh, uh, their their deadlines. They but but they do they do fit very neatly into a, a, a future with uh, that that's going to demand more more electricity out of the state. All right. Um, thank you for that, Jim Galloway. We are really at a point where I got to get to the final break of the show. I'm running a little late. Let me do that. We'll come back. We got a couple more issues I'm looking forward to asking the panel about. One quick point from before the break, when we talk about abortion law in Georgia, we have to remember the Georgia uh, Supreme Court still has to uh, rule on whether or not that six-week ban, the heartbeat uh, law, is in fact constitutional. And Republican leaders in both the Senate and House have said they really don't want to do anything until that ruling comes through. But as Galloway pointed out a few minutes ago, you never know how the right far right of the party can drive decisions being made in the legislature. Andre Gillespie, let's talk about Buddy Carter for a couple minutes, uh, because he is now leading uh, the effort uh, among a number of Republicans in Congress, and there's a similar effort going on in the Georgia legislature to create a so-called fair tax. Uh, it's a very simple idea. You would replace every existing federal tax, I mean, income tax, estate tax, all the rest, with a new national sales tax that could be as high as 30 percent. Andre, this idea has been around for a very long time. And actually, before your time in Georgia, uh, Congressman John Linder, uh, 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 connected with Neil Bortz, the radio personality, to really push it hard and, in fact, published a book on the fair tax. It's not going anywhere. The Wall Street Journal condemned it in very strong terms in an editorial earlier this week. Talk about it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there are lots of different tax proposals that are always put forward, one to either simplify the tax code or then two to try to make it fair, make sure that everybody pays their taxes. And so uh, this proposal says that why don't we just do kind of like a sales tax, a use tax that everybody pays. So everybody pays per their consumption. But here's the problem with sales taxes in general is that they tend to be regressive. People with lower incomes are going to end up paying more, right? Because they're going to pay for goods and services. And they're not like famous people who get goodie bags, right, where they can get some stuff for free and maybe be able to elide the taxation on it. Unless it's, of course, an Academy Awards goodie bag where, like, everybody reports the value of it. And if you don't report it, you're going to end up getting in trouble. So, like, this is the type of, of, of thing that ends up being problematic. There are other proposals out there. You know, the idea of having sort of like a flat income tax rate that's based on income where there are very few exceptions, right, could be something, you know, that like tax uh, law professors, you know, might be willing to engage theoretically. But the idea of the sales tax is something that at the end of the day is going to hit people in the pocketbook home in a real way. And if most people realized how much it was going to was going to cost them. And the possibility that some critics point out that it actually doesn't um, end up raising the same amount of revenue as our current tax system, right? That actually should pour some cold water on it. But, you know, it's not unusual. Um, and, and and I think and John Linder was still serving um, by the, when, I, when I first moved to Georgia. Oh, okay. So it's not surprising <laughs> that a Georgia that a Georgian would, you know, now resurrect this as a, as a discussion now that Republicans are in control of the House of Representatives. Alan, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this briefly is that um, this also is a piece of the Republican kind of war on the IRS. Um, you know, they're uh, right. clawing back the money uh, in the budget the IRS was going to get so they could expand their ability to actually process our taxes and others claiming that it was, in fact, going to be used to politicize, weaponize the IRS. And that's what right. Buddy Carter's bill really wants to do, which is eliminate the IRS. We don't need them. They're a uh, malicious right. organization. 
Well, exactly. And first of all, I want to thank Andre for warning me about that Academy Award goodie bag. So I'll know that you know I'm going to have to report that. Um, but I want to say that uh, if that's exactly right, um, Republicans hate the income tax. Um, they hate the fact that it's a progressive tax. Actually, the state income tax here in Georgia is not very progressive, um, but the federal income tax is still somewhat more more progressive. And Republicans have always um, hated it and always wanted to try to. Uh, uh, reduce the taxes, particularly at the uh, at the top end, and that's what they did uh, when Donald Trump was in the White House. It's the one legislative accomplishment that they really uh, had during the time that they controlled the House and Senate and the White House. Um, so it's not at all surprising that you'd see this um, support among some Republicans for the so-called um, uh, flat tax. It's got it's not going anywhere. Um, uh, certainly, it's not even going anywhere in the House of Representatives. Uh, and of course, you know, it would it would never uh, it's a total non-starter when it comes to the, the Senate and the White House. So um, Democrats are more interested in finding ways to bring in more revenue and and uh, raising the rates on 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 corporations and uh, upper income taxpayers. Um, Republicans don't seem to be at all in, in interested in doing that, despite the so-called you know, sort of uh, uh, effort by some Republicans to portray the party as now uh, becoming increasingly, quote, populist. Jim, quick uh, point about that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Number one, yeah, I, I think you have to, there's part of me that just appreciates uh, just this little bit of political nostalgia. You know, I mean, the 90s were such, <laughs> the 90s were such a, an innocent and, 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 and restful time for us. Um, but I, but I, but I would point out that, that you, Bill, you said it's not going anywhere, but we do have a, a new House Rules Committee with with nine members of the freedom uh uh conference on it and it's it, it's 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 very possible that they could insist on a floor vote on this well Ke kevin mccarthy we are told has apparently promised in exchange for his efforts to become speaker that there will be a floor vote on the fair tax so i get that um all right hey <clears throat> we are almost out of time <clears throat> excuse me and Anthony, I'm going to take you out of your sweet spot as a constitutional law professor and ask you to talk instead about what I think to start us on a conversation about a remarkable achievement. When Jimmy and Rosalind Carter founded the Carter Center back in the mid-80s, one of their biggest efforts was to work in public health in, in countries around the world that are dealing with some of the most pernicious diseases out there. And their disease was guinea worm. Guinea worm was a disease in Africa and Asia, still is, that affects about 3.5 million people every year. And the Carter Center was determined to do their best to try to wipe it out because it's a horrible, painful disease that literally infects people with worms that cause rashes, cause tremendous pain, swelling of parts of their body. And Anthony, I say all that to say the Carter Center has announced there are only 13 human cases of guinea worm reported in 2022. That is an astonishing achievement. The hard part is to come because there are still human cases. It's now a matter of keeping them from growing. Well, I, I think that most Georgians would probably share my sentiment that the Carter Center and the Carters are just a gem. Um, and I think that Jimmy Carter's post-presidency is one of the most remarkable mm -hmm. post-presidencies, maybe the most remarkable post-presidency, uh, uh, you know, that we've ever seen. Um, and and this the work, whether it's this or whether it's Habitat for Humanity or whether it's just, you know, teaching Sunday school, uh, I think it's really remarkable the things that they, the Carters have done for the for Georgia, for the country and for the world. Alan and Andra, of course, the Carter Center has a very strong partnership with Emory University's public health uh, people. So uh, there's congratulations mm -hmm. to the folks at Emory in public health as well. But, you know, Alan, I've said on the show many times that I've covered politics for a long, long time. Um, but the people who are the heroes in my life are not politicians. They are public health uh, 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 professionals who are out there fighting diseases like guinea worm, Alan. Uh, right. I couldn't agree more. And um, and th those folks have been uh, obviously under uh, tremendous pressure over the last few years. 
um, with with the you know coronavirus pandemic, um, both here in the United States and 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 around the world, um, and they get vilified, you know, and and we've seen them become the targets of uh, of political attacks um, here in the I United give, States. So, I want, so they deserve a lot of credit. I, I apologize, but Andre and Jim, I want to give each of you just a minute to respond because we're out of time. Yeah, no, I, I am reminded of, I just heard Michelle Obama in California um, last month. And so talking about the idea of seeing a need where you are and then trying to fulfill it. And so the Carters had a much larger platform, but they picked a disease that didn't have a whole lot of attention. They brought their resources and celebrity to bear to be able to solve it. And I'm glad that they've been able to live to see the fruits of their labor. Absolutely. Jim, real quick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in, in 1985 or 86, there were 3.5 million cases of this, and and they have brought it down to 13. That's a soft number. They they admit it, 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 that could change, but I think it's just it's a remarkable it, it, to be president of the United States and er eradicate a disease. Uh, <laughs> that you know, that, 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 there there hasn't been anybody like Jimmy Carter before. Well, as we've said when we've done shows with Bill Fagey, one of the giants of public health, he was, in fact, uh, led the effort to eradicate the only disease that has ever been entirely eradicated in humans, and that was smallpox. If they do it with guinea worm, it will really be uh, remarkable. We're just about out of time. Here's my quick comment, though, as we close. Atlanta actor Danielle Detweiler who played Emma Till's mother in the remarkable movie Till and gave a spectacular performance and is beloved by a lot of us who care about the Atlanta theater community, did not get a nomination for Best Actress. And I think that is a crime, and I wish there was some way we could do something about it. We can't, but we can give a shout-out to Danielle how much we love watching oh, the successes okay, you had. That's Remind it for today. Jim Galloway, Alan Abramowitz, Andre Gillespie, Anthony Michael Christ, thank you for being with us. We'll be back tomorrow with another show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nigat. Take care. Stay healthy. when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.